But when you go out there and you're standing on a ridge line and it's blowing like stink, take as much time to breathe and look around as you would if you were standing on that same ridge line and it was sunny and gorgeous and you were appreciating the sunrise. Just don't get in a hurry in this business. tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside, with additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Hey, I hope everyone's doing well out there and watching it stack up wherever you are. I just completed teaching the first Airy Level 1 Rec Avalanche course for my season, and that took place in Mount Baker, Washington. Timing was great. There was some new snow that had fallen on top of uh, a rain crust that formed when three inches of water fell on the snowpack from December 7th through 9th. So that was starting to get covered up by the time I got here. My timing was great, and we had a great course with some really motivated students teaching alongside some great instructors with that. But holy cow, the, the whole parking lot scene at Mount Baker is super cool camped out here for a few nights and um, I think there were three different providers with you know 18 to 24 students in avalanche courses um, plus lots of recreationists out there uh, in the Mount Baker backcountry it just really reminded me how how busy things can get and how um, how important it is that we follow some COVID guidelines your state and local Um, guidelines for COVID precautions and then also the COVID precautions that that the ski areas or the Forest Service is trying to enforce so um, we're all trying to get along out there and I direct everybody to check out the ski kind message Um, you can go to a website I think it's just skikind.org and there's some really great messaging about the backcountry's responsibility code. I mean, I think now more than ever with people getting into the backcountry um, and in the COVID age, we all need to take a deep breath at the trailheads and be kind to one another. So that's my little spiel for today. I've got a couple things to mention before we jump into this next episode here. Um, Of course, We've got a great snow saw giveaway going on from Primo Snow and Avalanche, the El Profesional snow saw. You're going to want to get your hands on one of these. Um, And so if you want to enter to win one of these, the drawing will be on January 5th during the interview with Matt Promomo of Primo Snow and Avalanche. All you got to do is send us an email with a screenshot of your podcast subscription 
been getting lots of screenshots and nice notes from people so really appreciate that um, so just send that over to the avalanche hour podcast at gmail.com and you'll be entered to win if you can't wait for that entry or you're not very lucky then you can go to primosnowavalanche.com and at checkout if you enter the code tah10 you'll get 10 percent off your el profesional snow saw that's lightweight and cuts straight big thanks to wes greg um wes has come on board as many of you know um and he's just kind of like picking up all all of my pieces um it's been super helpful and we're working really well together um and we're in the midst of of facilitating maybe even more growth and i'm getting some emails from uh folks in europe which is great we just hit the (laughs) i think we're 86th on the apple charts for the sports and recreation in finland which i'm very proud of um so so there's a lot of growth going on in the podcast and um hoping to expand that to to some further reaches of the globe and get some different perspectives on here um so look for more of that in the future and please be patient with our growth and finally we've got kind of a new thing going on with some affiliate marketing we've got some codes in the show notes and some links that'll help save you money and help maybe put a little bit of money in our account to help uh help offset some of this growth so uh, make sure to check out the show notes for some codes that'll save you 10% on a pair of Wonder Alpine skis, um, as well as some discounts from Hagen Ski Mountaineering out of Colorado, and um, some some great discounts on some uh, CBD products, topicals, gummies, stuff that'll help you help you sleep if you have a hard time with that. I find that the topicals are really nice for. Um, you know kind of soothing the muscles after a long day in the mountains so if you're going to use any of this stuff anyways why not help us out while you're at it and save a little money for yourself use the discount and code that you can find in the show notes i'm pretty sure y'all are gonna enjoy this episode i sat down and talked with dave richards also known as grom in the avalanche circles of the Wasatch Mountains of of Northern Utah. And we had a great conversation. I really appreciate his perspective on a lot of things. He he gives us a rundown of the history of Little Cottonwood Canyon, as well as some of the history pertaining to snow and avalanche forecasting and mitigation in the canyon, as well as his personal history with, um, with the town of Alta. And his roots certainly run very deep in that town and in that canyon. You know, I think there's just a lot of great wisdom um, that's been cultivated within the the snow and avalanche community within the Cottonwood Canyons, but specifically in this context, Little Cottonwood Canyon. Um, and that collective wisdom and, and knowledge and evolution of, of our understanding of snow and avalanches is apparent in, in Dave's respect and sense of place in Little Cottonwood Canyon. He gives us a glimpse into what a storm morning is like in Little Cottonwood Canyon. He talks about some of the entities that have skin in the game when trying to get uh, the town of Alta and Little Cottonwood Canyon open to the skiing public. So without further ado, let's dive right in with Dave Richards. (music) 
Dave Richards, also known as Grom from Alta. Thanks for sitting down with us today. Uh, just describe what you're doing this morning. Well, right now I'm sitting in my office, but uh, this morning I've been out in the, the parking lot and we're loading up all of the remote avalanche control systems, the O-Bells and the Vison Towers, and uh, getting them full of of their various explosive materials and ready to fly uh, into their positions, which will start this afternoon and continue through Thursday. We'll have helicopters buzzing all over the place, putting things in place. All right. Well, it certainly sounds like a, a busy time of year in Little Cottonwood Canyon getting ready for the upcoming winter. I'd love it if you could talk about some history of the town of Alta, the ski area history, the, you know, history of snow and avalanche forecasting in Little Cottonwood Canyon, kind of bring some context to it. Well, you know, Little Cottonwood Canyon and Alta are kind of the birthplace of avalanche research and avalanche study in the United States, uh, which makes it a pretty magical place to be. Um, you know, Alta was a mining town in the 1800s and through the early 1900s. And on a number of occasions during that period of time, avalanches completely wiped out the town and killed many, many, many people um, during the winter months. And it came to the point where the town would basically become abandoned during the winter. And... Uh, then in the summer, the miners would come back, do their work, and then get out of here. And as part of that, they deforested the entire place to use all the timbers inside their mine shafts. So the Alta that you see today, which you know consists of healthy forest and, and lots of trees um, outside of the slide pass, is actually very different from what uh, they were dealing with in the old days. They deforested the the whole hillside and there were no anchors anywhere and they just had these massive avalanches that would wipe out town and then mining kind of died silver prices dropped off and um in the early 1930s the angen brothers skied over from brighton in big cottonwood canyon and looked at this place and said you know we need a ski resort there and uh 1938 Lo and behold, there was a ski resort. And at that point, people realized, man, we got to do something about this avalanche problem. And initially, the avalanche problem was handled by the U.S. Forest Service and the U.S. Forest Service snow rangers. And the real study of snow and avalanches here started with a guy named Ed LaChapelle, who everyone should be familiar with. He's kind of the grandfather of, of snow science in America. And... He, along with some of the snow rangers, developed all the techniques that we currently use today for studying snow, for studying avalanches. I mean, in reality, we've got a lot fancier tools now than we used to have in their age, but um, the concept's the same. You know, you got snow, you got strong layers, you got weak layers, and you put a bunch of weight on it and you get avalanches. And... That's kind of, I mean, those are the basics. And, you know, they, they measured wind and how much snow moved with wind. And, and those rules really still apply today. And then uh, a fellow named Monty Atwater came along after the Second World War. And he got a job as a snow ranger. And he started looking around going, you know, I could use explosives to prematurely trigger avalanches at the time and place of my choosing. 
um, if I lock everyone inside, I can mitigate the hazard and then open it up and let them go skiing. And in 1948, we started using military artillery with a French 75 pack howitzer that he basically stole from the Utah National Guard. And uh, the artillery program is alive and well throughout the United States today. Uh, we have four artillery pieces here in Little Cottonwood Canyon still, two in Alta, two at Snowbird. Um, and now we're moving away from that era of artillery and and uh, into an era of remote avalanche control systems. And I've spent my morning outside in the cold, uh, starting up and fueling up and loading up all of the uh, remote systems that will be used through the canyon this winter, uh, both in Alta area and on the highway. So it's kind of... We're, we're going through another period of great change here in the canyon, and it's really fun to be part of it, honestly. But we stand on the shoulders of the people that came before us, and their, you know, science really still plays today. So Certainly a transitional phase over time um, away from some of that artillery. Dave, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about like why why did why does artillery work so well, and then what are some of the drawbacks to it when you're trying to mitigate for avalanche hazard both for the highway and for the ski area? So artillery, is, you know, is a beautiful tool for avalanche work. You can reach out and touch a slide path from miles and miles away, so you're not exposing your personnel to the actual avalanche hazard. Um, you can shoot it in the dark. You can shoot it in the storm. It has incredible accuracy, and you know that the bullet is going to go where you pointed it. Um, so it, it's a wonderful tool for that. Uh, it's also relatively cheap, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, the drawbacks of artillery are, obviously, we're shooting you know, anti-personnel munitions into the the terrain that many people backcountry ski in. So it requires everybody being locked inside their buildings uh, during a period of inner lodge, uh, full road closures. Um, and, you know, there's so many people backcountry skiing in the Wasatch now that we're, we're quite honestly nervous about having people out there wandering around that we don't know about in these start zones, people that are actually breaking inner lodge and going out and skiing. We haven't had an accident, and I think it's highly unlikely that we will. But that said, the responsible thing to do is to move away from that tool to new and, and more modern technologies that we can uh, fire remotely. We, we still have to lock everyone inside for the avalanche hazard, but we don't have to worry so much about shooting over the tops of inhabited buildings and, and into start zones where there may be people wandering around. Sure. You mentioned interlodge. Could you just explain that for those folks that might not know what, what that is? Yeah. So interlodge is something that happens here in Little Cottonwood Canyon. Um, it happens in Europe in places. Uh, it's basically the concept of martial law, and people in Little Cottonwood Canyon are really used to 
this concept, people outside of Little Cottonwood Canyon, as we've proven through COVID, really don't like the idea of being locked in their homes and told that there's a curfew and they can't go out. Well, here in Little Cottonwood, we just throw out a curfew. Uh, it's part of a decision that's made between the ski areas, the Utah Department of Transportation, and the local law enforcement. And uh, after that curfew, everyone is required to be inside. Uh, the road is closed. And if you're caught outside, it is uh, punishable by law. You can go to jail for it. Um, and you're locked inside under this curfew until such a time as the avalanche hazard is mitigated and the uh, control mission is completed. And then people are allowed to go out and go skiing. So it's actually kind of a... Uh, you know, people in the world of COVID have said, man, I hate this. And it's something that every little Conwood Canyon skier dreams about. They, yeah. they want to be caught up here during an interlodge because they know that the next morning is going to be amazing. Um, last year we had one that lasted 52 hours. And, uh, you know, but once once the doors open, the chains comes off the doors, the, the skiing was all time. So. Right. That's is is every powder skier's dream to have that country club experience up in Little Cottonwood Canyon. <laughs> it really is. It really is. I was hoping you could recount growing up at Alta. You've you grew up in the Wasatch and, and talk about your memories growing up skiing at Alta and, and how that how that helped shape your career um and some of the prominent influences in your childhood and in in your adolescence right well yeah i mean i'm i'm from here which is it's not a rare thing but it's relatively uncommon um to actually be from here uh my father was the assistant patrol director in the 1970s and met my mother who was a um deskie she, she worked the front desk at one of the hotels and, uh, yeah, we were raised with Altas as kind of our playground. That was, uh, that was recess. Um, and during my adolescent years, uh, we lived in the Valley because there was no school up here. And so we lived in the Valley so I could go to school. But in reality, I, you know, arranged school so that I would, be up here skiing by about two o'clock in the afternoon every single day. Um, and I kind of grew up with all the characters of Alta and, and have watched it changed over the years. Uh, you know, we've gone from slow double lifts and parking lots full of uh, 1980s bus tours to uh, high speed lifts and, and a very different clientele. I mean, everyone around here is a pro skier as best I can tell just ask them. Um, and, but the mountain's still the same, and a lot of the faces are still the same. Uh, I was caught in an avalanche at the age of 13 years old when I was taken out by one of the patrollers to do a ski-cutting mission, and he was just going to show me, show me around, and we were going to play around a little bit. And uh, I went to ski-cut this slope, and I got caught and carried quite a ways. And uh, that patroller 
ended up being one of my route partners for 12 years and still works here today. And I was just out there in the parking lot working with him right now. So a lot of the faces are still the same. People come here not for two years of ski patrolling after college, but to actually make it a career, and, and they stick around for a long time. And uh, We've all seen a lot of change, but the mountain's still the same, and it still snows like hell, and uh, well, we still have avalanches to deal with and some of the best powder skiing in the world, in my opinion. Right. Grom, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about why Alta has the greatest snow on earth and why you get so much of it well <laughs> that's really a better question for jim steenberg at the university of utah but uh you know so little conway canyon is this big funnel it's just a big u-shaped canyon it has no turns the whole way up so when you get the right flow direction of, of a west northwest flow coming across the west desert coming across the Great Salt Lake, which may or may not kick in a little extra moisture to uh, give you some lake of flake effect, it's funneled straight into the mouth of Little Conway Canyon. And then because of the gradient of the canyon and the direction it faces into that west-northwest flow, it's just pushed up the canyon nice and slow until it runs into the ridgeline of the head of the Albion Basin. And when it hits that ridge line, it's got to dump. It has to dump all of its water weight in order to jump over the top and get onto the east side of the range. So it just kind of creeps up the canyon, creeps up the canyon, creeps up the canyon on this perfect funnel, and then smacks into the Devil's Castle and unloads. And, uh, you know, the, the desert plays into the density, the temperatures. You know, this isn't a cold place. It, it's actually quite pleasant. I pity the guys that, you know, work in Montana and Jackson Hole where it's freezing all the time. I wouldn't be able to do that. I'm not mm. tough enough. But, uh, you know, because of the temperature and that, and that nice dry desert, and then you add the lake into it, and um, the direction of flow as it comes up the gradient of the canyon, you just end up with these you know, really amazing snowstorms up here. Talk us through what a typical morning, avalanche control morning might look like and, and maybe add in some coordination that goes on between the highway um, and other entities in the, in the canyon. Yeah, so our morning here in the Alta Avalanche office starts anywhere between 3.30 and 4 in the morning. Um, we start out back in the backyard where we take some snow measurements, kind of get a feel for what's going on. I actually walk over to work, so I get to cross-country ski through the through the woods and get a feel for what's going on in the snow, which is, is in, invaluable in my mind. Um, then we land here in the office, lights come on, and you're looking at weather information and, uh, you know, past avalanche activity, and then 4 o'clock-ish, we talked to the guys at the highway department to, to see what they want to do as far as shooting the highway. And based on all that information, we kind of come up with a battle plan. And um, that plan, you know, basically is to provide direction and an intent to the crew because they're, they're the guys that are going to actually go out and get it done. Um, you know, I, I can't be on every route 
on a mountain this big, uh, nor do I want to be. And I have 100% faith in my staff to go out and, and take the direction and intent to open this or close this, test this, and uh, see what we come up with for skiable terrain for the day. Um, the patrol starts filtering in um, the gun crew. We, we feed our staff breakfast, um, something neat that Alta does for our, our staff that most people don't do, but that everyone comes in, they gather for breakfast, they get to talk, they get to think about what's going on out there, all the weather information they want is um, provided to them at that point so they can look at the whiteboards over breakfast and kind of mull it over. Um, started around 5 o'clock and then um, load the lift at 5.30 and then the next crew has breakfast at 5.30 and loads the lift at 6 and then the next crew has breakfast at 6.45 and loads, or loads the lift at 7 and uh, kind of in waves kind of spread out over the mountain running first protection routes so that everyone can get around and then shooting the guns and then uh, actually running the in-depth routes that take place so that we can open ski train. And that lasts uh, all day long until about 5.30. So 3.30 to 5.30 pretty much every day. Right. The old ball and chain. That's right. <laughs> you know, there's a reason they call it work is what Pete Groves would tell you. Yeah. And and you also have some, some racks on the hill as well? We do. Um, Alta has a series of Obelx exploders on the hill. Um, uh, the highway department has Obelx exploders, Gazex exploders, and Vison towers on the hill. And uh, Alta has big plans to move into the future with an expanded racks program, um, moving away first from artillery and then eventually f away from even avalanchers and uh, things like that. So, and and you're trying, my... trying to slowly move away from things that fly through the air. Sure. But in your mind, there, all, there will always be a place for hand routes, I imagine, eh? Absolutely. Absolutely. Hand routes are the bread and butter of a ski resort, um, especially a ski resort like this. Uh, you know, we takes 48 guys out running hand routes to, uh, to just get the ski resort open. Um, and then you know, you supplement that with the racks and the avalanchers and the howitzers, but, mm -hmm. uh, th those, those devices are generally used to affect high alpine terrain that we can't get to from a lift, um, and terrain that kind of looms over the skiable terrain below it. Um, and, but all the, all the skiable terrain, all the stuff that you actually get to put your skis on day to day, uh, is, done with with hand hand routes um of course there are those days when we open all that high alpine terrain which is is actually fairly frequent but even then we supplement the racks and the howitzer shots with uh hand routes we we kind of soften it up with the howitzer and then we'll go up there and do do hand routes on something say like mount baldy which is a 11,000 foot peak um, with some really good steep skiing but uh, it's just kind of up there in the storm and hard to open every day. So, Grom is another part of that, just trying to get get 
skis in the snow there too and, and get an actual person looking at what's going on a little bit bit closer look very much so i mean running a route on that that upper stuff you know there's a lot of pit digging that goes on a lot of looking at it really hard because we aren't up there every single day mm-hmm. you know and it doesn't get skier disturbance um it doesn't get those layers turned over in it like the rest of the ski train does every day yeah, it just isn't um, seeing the compaction. You know, to, yeah, you know, we're hesitant to use the word compaction. Mm. Um, I personally don't believe in skier compaction. This is just me. Mm-hmm. Uh, a snowcat can compact a slope. Mm-hmm. A bulldozer can compact a slope. Skiers can't compact a slope. They can disturb the layers within that uh, snowpack. And they can disturb, kind of cut up the slab, so to speak, so that it can't propagate beyond the cuts in the slab. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we try and ski things from the ground up around here. We, we kind of think of it as from dirt to moguls. And that, com- that beats up those faceted layers on the ground and beats up those faceted layers in the snowpack. But you'll always find weak snow at the bottom of a snowpack in in a ski area if you look in the right place there's just there's just no way for skiers to affect all the way to the ground every time so i don't really buy into skier compaction okay well um, we'll call it skier disturbance then yeah and and it seems like one of the strategies that you all implement is trying to get as many skiers onto slopes as early as you can right we can. We're super, super aggressive here at Alta, and it's something we're really proud of. Is our goal is to get terrain open in as safe a manner as possible, as soon as possible, because we want our skiers to get out there and beat it up, and disturb those weak layers and disturb that slab. Um, you know, that's our number one tool in in our kind of war against avalanches is. Uh, our skiing public. We go out there, do the work to mitigate the hazard, and then it's still raging, it's still snowing, so we need to get skiers out there and get them to beat it up mm-hmm. and turn it over for us, you know. Are there any considerations with COVID and in, in, um, in terms of having fewer skiers on the hill? Is that is that going to be a reality, and is that going to affect your program this year? I think it will. Um, we don't know how that looks, to be perfectly honest with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think having fewer skiers on the hill will mean having fewer ski tracks in that terrain that we want skied up. Um, and we may have to kind of be a little more strategic about um, opening things in certain manners so that we kind of open one thing, let the public beat it beat it senseless, and then open something else and let them beat that senseless and kind of do it in steps as opposed to just kind of everything at once because we won't have enough skiers to cover everything at once. But we're going to kind of try and manipulate our skier traffic a little bit to get them to go where we want them to go by offering them fresh powder over the course of the day. Mm. Um, here's a, a listener question from social media and, and we've kind of been dancing around it. 
Um, it sounds like you have a bunch of tools in the toolbox for mitigating avalanches, everything from remote avalanche control systems to artillery to avalanche to hand routes to the skiing public. Um, somebody wants to know what's your favorite strategy or method? What our favorite strategy or method is to, uh, to mitigate avalanche hazard? Yeah. Well, it really is skiing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, as much as I'd like to go out and just throw bombs all day long, you know, that's, that's not really the goal. The goal is to get it skied. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the number one strategy is to go ski it. Cause I want to go ski it too. You know, I mean, let's, let's not sell you a line of BS here. I want to go ski powder too. And your so that's, too. that's my favorite method, <laughs> you know, that's definitely my favorite method of, of a lim- of mitigating avalanche hazard is to get it open and get people skiing it. So, right. So, um, the, the Obelax installation was new, I think what is it, several years ago, right? Um, within... it's been a work in progress over the last five years. Yeah. Uh huh. And w- and what was the, yeah. what was the impetus for the installation of that? Well, that was kind of Alta's first step into racks. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a face that hangs above, uh, a connecting road that kind of connects the, the two sides of the ski area, uh, called the East Baldy Traverse. And that road, if it's closed due to hazard from that slope above, kind of cuts off our ability to ski the two sides of the mountain as one big ski hill. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you basically cut the mountain in half. So the goal was to put in these racks, which could be fired almost instantaneously at any point during the day. Um, so if the EVT, the East Baldy Traverse is open and it's snowing like stink and the wind's blowing really hard from the South, we can close it, sweep it, shoot it with these rack systems and have it reopened within about 15 minutes and have our whole ski resort back. Um, whereas previously it was shot with an avalanche and you can't shoot an avalanche during the middle of the day when there's people around. So sounds like a game changer kind of, it kind of is, it, it really has been. And it's convinced us that that's the road that we want to go down for other pieces of terrain that pose similar problems. Mm-hmm. Dave, so there's a, I imagine that there's a, a treasure trove of snow and avalanche data housed in Little Cottonwood. Um, how far back does that go? And has it been digitized? And do people still look at that? Talk a little bit about that history and, and where that has, how that has evolved over time. We do have a treasure trove. I mean, that we don't even understand to some extent. I mean, every time I look through the old libraries, I find stuff that I've never seen before. Uh, some of it is digitized and held at the Marriott library. Uh, some of it, you know, many of the original papers from Ron Perla, Moni Atwater, Ed LaChapelle, Sferingen are, um, are held up here in, in paper copies and, and, uh, we get to read through them. It's actually something that's kind of on the list to try and find a, 
a PhD student out there amongst hopefully your listeners that wants to take hold of the Alta Snow Safety Library, which is huge, and digitize the whole thing for the whole world to see so that it's not just locked up where only we get to look at it. But uh, those records go back even before uh, the ski resort existed to uh, the early 1900s with photos and records and diary entries regarding the uh, the avalanches that wiped out the old silver mining town. So, and we yeah we have storm records and everything from 1915 on. <laughs> so and pretty consistent from 1915 on, right? It doesn't become incredibly consistent until the Snow Rangers really took over until the 1930s. Okay. Um, but, yeah, we have, you know, from 1938 on, we uh, the Snow Rangers kept really good, accurate records, and we've got a lot of it. So, wow. so if, there's a, if there's a doctorate student out there listening that wants a or, – or a master's student and wants a project to digitize and make public all of these records, it would be – It'd be quite the uh, undertaking, and it'd be unbelievably interesting for the industry. Right. Well, I should add that was another listener-based question, so um, unfortunately I can't pull up right now who that was, but maybe they're interested in it. Who, who would somebody get in touch with if, if they were interested in doing that? Is that you? They would get in touch with me, yes. Okay, cool. That sounds like a pretty cool opportunity for somebody. Another listener-based question. Um, What is the most challenging and then also the most rewarding aspects of being involved with the snow safety program at Alta? The most challenging is, quite honestly, the the stress that comes with, um, you know, your your crew, to be perfect, to be perfectly honest. I mean... You you just said a word snow safety right and we don't like to use the the words snow safety mm-hmm. um, because really there's nothing safe about it I mean mm. I'm gonna send you out into the storm in the dark in a known avalanche hazard with explosives and there's a hundred things that can go wrong. So there, I mean, there's really nothing safe about it. Uh, that, that's a real misnomer. Um, so the stress is there. That's where it starts is with your crew in the morning. You, you kind of wave goodbye as these guys head out the door and, and you follow them, but you can't be with them everywhere on the hill. And, and the stress is, is worrying about what can go wrong. That's going to hurt or to be honest, kill, uh, one of my employees and, and these are my friends, you know, these are, these are my best friends. Um, and once they all say, okay, I'm good to go. <laughs> you kind of take a deep sigh of relief. And now you spend the rest of the day stressing about the well-being of the public on the Hill. It's an incredibly high stress job. And I, uh, you realize that, you know, you have to have a lot of faith in your abilities and your knowledge of the snowpack and um, your, you know, knowledge of the terrain and and 
your experience, but it's an inexact science. It's really an inexact science, and uh, sometimes things just kind of go sideways on you, and you, you spend a lot of time worrying about that. The most rewarding part of it is uh, getting to go ski powder, you know, getting to open terrain that that you've been working towards opening, uh, big terrain, you know, like Devil's Castle or those chutes, and my favorite places to go skiing and, and go and ski them yourself. That's, that's a reward, you know, so. I imagine you have to have a, a, a large amount of faith in your crew and trust in your crew as well. The other fellow, uh, ladies and gentlemen of the Alta Ski Patrol. Dave, what are some communication techniques that your, your team uses to ensure the flow of, of good information amongst all patrollers, say when they're changing um, snow and weather conditions or, or, or some big change happens on the mountain? So it's kind of funny. Years ago, one of the old patrollers wrote a poem about talking on the radio. And it was the ABCs of communication, accuracy, brevity, and clarity. And it really rings true. You know, when you're out there and the wind's blowing like stink and no one can really understand what you're saying on the radio, but you're trying to get a point across to me or one of the other forecasters, um, you just need to be accurate and brief and plain speak. Don't get bogged down in the, you know, minutia of I did this test and I got this score at this depth in centimeters on this size of a grain or da 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 da, da. You know, I, I don't need to hear ECTP12, you know, Q1. I need to hear, hey, did an ECT test. Uh, there's a really good shear 12 inches deep, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I guess 12 inches deep is, is confusing because I use the score of 12, but, you know, at some depth. So, sure. you know. So brevity and Somewhere. clarity and, and um, accuracy, is that right? And accuracy, yeah. You know, if, if you get an avalanche that's really big, I obviously need to know about it immediately. Um, but you need to be accurate to the point where we don't terrify everybody in the world, right, who's also out there on routes, but do get the point across that, hey, we just got something really big. People need to be heads up, you know. So if you're going to report a depth, report it accurately. If you're going to report a, you know, width, report it accurately. If, if something ran a long, long ways, give a reference point to that everyone else on the patrol knows, you know, it ran to the lower Susie's gate, say, you know, now everybody knows how far it ran. If you start saying, you know, it ran 600 vertical feet, someone's going to say, was that vertical or linear or, you know, whatever, or how wide was that or da, 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 da. You just need to be accurate and clear when you describe what's going on. So, and I would say that for backcountry skiers too, when people re report their, uh, 
their avalanche findings for the day, you know, you, I, a whole story about your day backcountry skiing doesn't do me any good. A sentence and a half about what what you actually saw means more than anything, especially if it's an avalanche observation. Boy, isn't that important in this day and age with so much information out there? And, and, and we're so lucky to have, I guess you could call it the crowdsourced information network in some of these mountain communities. Um, but, but certainly is important for people to continue to submit observations, but like you say, submit relevant observations and, and use a bit of brevity there. Yeah, I think, I think crowdsourcing and social media have been great for the avalanche industry, but people need to remember that, you know, an, an observations page on a forecast center site is not a, an extension of Instagram. You know, if you saw an avalanche, tell me about it. If you didn't see an avalanche, tell me that, you know, don't, don't tell me about, I went here, I went there, I went to the next place. The skiing was awesome. And, uh, oh yeah, by the way, I saw an avalanche. It was really huge. You know, <laughs> like that, that, that doesn't mean anything to me. Right. Dave, what sort of equipment do do your patrollers head out on control routes with? I'm sure it involves beacon shovel probe. Is everybody wearing an airbag pack, and are all of your patrollers wearing wearing helmets these days? So everyone is is beacon shovel probe every day. Um, you'll see our patrollers skiing around with shovels on, uh, you know, when you totally wouldn't expect it. Uh, it's just part of our mentality here. We're just always prepared for that. Uh, when you're running routes, everyone's issued an airbag. Um, every patroller, you know, as part of their gear, as part of their uniform is given their own airbag and, uh, they wear them on routes. Uh, many of them wear them throughout the day. Um, when they're not running routes, they're not required to wear them. They can just, you know, ditch it in the top shack. As long as it's somewhere close by, if they're going into the backcountry on a rescue, they have to have their airbag on. Mm -hmm. um, we don't require helmets uh, at this point. About, I would say about fifty percent of the staff wear them, but we don't require them. Um, it's just a choice by Alta and Alta management that people can use their own common sense you know, and decide whether they want to wear them or not. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we rely on our staff's common sense more than anything. When we hire people, I tell them, you're being hired for your common sense, you know, not because you've taken a pro two or anything. I don't really care. Um, you're being hired for your common sense. You're being hired for your gut instinct and you're a smart person. So you make the decision whether you want to wear a helmet or not. It's not my place to tell you. Right. It's kind of refreshing in this day and age. I think it is. And I think it's empowering to the, to the crew, you know, to be trusted, to, to make their own decisions, to make smart decisions. And it's the same thing when they're out running routes, you know, I'm, I'm not there to hold their hand. Uh, they, they make smart decisions. They run the route. They feel like they need to run and they use the explosives. They feel like they need to use. I don't tell them how many shots to take. I don't tell them where to put them, you know, they're, they're trusted to use their common sense. 
gonna we're not gonna babysit every every city every single ski patrol around the hill sure well so, in my opinion my humble opinion i would say that as you said empowers people and also gives people a little skin in the game right talk a little bit it does. Are, are people sticking to the same route for the whole season or for their whole ski patrol career even <laughs> So what, what we do is we assign routes at the start of the year and they're assigned to that route for that year. And some people stay there for years and years and years, particularly on the real big, scary routes. Um, and that kind of gives them ownership. You know, that allows me to give them direction and intent like I talked about but they take ownership in their own part of the mountain they know more about the snowpack on that part of the mountain than I likely do they definitely know more about the avalanche history on that part of the mountain than I likely do I would have to get on the computer and look back at all the slides they've had all winter long to know every single one but if they've been there during a storm for the last five days straight, they know what's run and what hasn't. So they're, they're empowered to take ownership of their own terrain, their own part of Valta, and make it their own and know it better than anybody else. And um, if they have questions for me, ask. And if I have questions for them, I guarantee they can answer because they, they take you know, full ownership of their own situation. And then they'll also end up running all sorts of secondary and third tier routes, which they aren't assigned to full time, um, which are kind of, uh, you know, bigger, more difficult to access pieces of terrain, a little more complex. And we spread out the whole patrol throughout those. But, you know, you're never going to find yourself on some real big kid route without somebody that's been there a hundred times before you. So... Mm-hmm. So um, I keep kind of coming back to the idea that your patrol sounds very close-knit, a tight team with a, a, a lot of experience, right? I mean, I have to imagine the average ski patroller at Alta is probably in the 15-year range. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but... Um, it's, it would be hard, I imagine, to just walk onto the ski patrol. And so another listener based question is what does the ideal patrol candidate look like at Alta? Well, that's kind of hard to ask because until you meet them, you don't really know. Um, we're a hodgepodge of different personalities. Um, different sizes, different strengths, you know, blah, 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 on and on and on. Um, some people come to the patrol looking for a job with a pro two, for instance, with a lot of avalanche education, but they don't have the personality to fit in with this crew. Um, I, hire people we hire people because it's a it's a joint effort between myself and the patrol director mm -hmm. um we hire people frequently just based on their common sense 
and the way to know their common sense is to get to know them and most patrollers that get hired at Alta have been around for a few years and they've made friends with the patrol and they get to know them and the patrol likes them you know they obviously kind of fit in and they've shown some level of intelligence and willingness to trust their gut instinct but they're also willing to be a complete type a um our patrol is made up of you know this big group of real type a personalities they're leaders and i'm really proud of that sometimes it's really hard to have 63 type a personalities in the same room <laughs> as you might imagine <laughs> you know but um when they're cut loose on the hill without a boss looking over their shoulder they become their own leaders and that's what's really really valuable so it's almost impossible to walk onto a job on the Alta Ski Patrol. This year we hired one person. Um, I think last year we hired two. And that's strictly because we're expanding the size of the patrol. Uh, people don't leave. Um, this is a career job for a lot of these guys. And, uh, but it really boils down to, you know, when I sit down with you and and we start talking and go skiing together a i can see that you're a really strong skier and b i can go you know this, this person's got got instinct and instinct will keep you alive in the mountains forever simply listening to your gut instinct and being observant of what's going on around you is the most valuable thing you'll ever find in avalanche work i mean you can study facets till the cows come home, but until you actually feel it under your feet, you don't know what it means. Sure. Um, you, you know, I, I feel like in, in my career at times I've, I've been too focused on looking into, in the snow pit or something. And, and, and oftentimes it, it takes stepping back. And as you say, just being observant, having some mountain sense and, and a greater sense of awareness to really get that, bigger picture of what's actually going on, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Ed LaChapelle, one of my favorite quotes, and I'm going to get it wrong, so I apologize, but it says that the inexperienced person can often become lost in a sea of information, whereas the experienced person does not get caught up in last week's range of temperature gradients or the overnight snowfall but instead simply asked, has an avalanche fallen recently? And I completely butchered that quote, but that's the concept. Has an avalanche fallen recently? Get your head out of the snow pit and start looking around. You know, avalanches travel in packs. So you see one, it's probably going to tell you more than you, your pit will tell you about what's coming next. Right. Something that's always stuck with me is I, I always heard stories about uh, the mail carriers going up little Cottonwood Canyon and after a significant mm -hmm. storm, they would just wait three days. Yeah. Albert to Spain, he delivered the mail up here by horse, you know, for God knows how many years. I, I mean, I don't even want to guess I'd get it wrong, but, um, 
he has amazing stories or had amazing stories about avalanches in Little Cottonwood Canyon. And his rule was just wait, you know, he didn't know anything about snow. You just wait. And he'd come up and find, you know, entire mining camps completely wiped out. And, you know, um, he has amazing stories. And, and uh, Liam Fitzgerald, who was the lead forecaster for the Utah Department of Transportation for a long time, and before that ran the avalanche department at um, Snowbird in the 70s, actually took Albert to Spain in the truck and drove around with him for couple or three days and just listen to old stories and those old stories. I mean, that's just being observant. That's those stories will tell you so much of what you possibly could learn, you know, more than you can learn in your own lifetime. Sure. Yeah. I, I would, uh, point listeners back to Liam's episode. If you haven't heard that, it's a, it's another great episode as well. Grom, what, what would you say your most proud moment as a Alta ski patroller is? Oh, wow. I don't know. Honestly. I mean, I've done a lot of good skiing. I've seen a lot of big avalanches. I've had some incredibly rewarding saves. Um, I've had some incredibly defeating uh, recoveries. Um I don't know if I could pick one moment that's my most proud moment. I'm pretty proud of all of it, honestly. It's a pretty neat place to be and and a hell of a job to have, be trusted with. I think one of the proudest moments, honestly, was a letter I got from uh, one of the previous uh, snow safety directors here that, that literally just simply said, good job. And I think that was... To hear it from your mentors is, is probably more valuable than anything else. Who who were some of your formidable mentors? <laughs> well, my father, obviously. Um, you know, my dad uh, traveled the mountains of the world as a climber and a skier um, through the 60s and 70s and then uh, with children uh, through the 80s and 90s. And uh, I learned a lot from from my dad, uh, mostly about just being observant. I'm not sure that my father could tell you what a faceted grain actually looks like, but he could tell you how to avoid getting killed in avalanches. He was really good at that part of it. Um, I learned a lot from Titus Case. I learned, you know, pretty much everything about my job from from Titus Case, who was my predecessor. He had my job for 28 years. I I learned a lot from Anna Waringa, who was the general manager of Alta and the snow safety director or the avalanche program director uh, prior to Titus. You know, um, the, they're countless. They're countless. Uh, Sarah Carpenter, Don Sheriff, Theo Miner was, was an incredible mentor of mine. Um, you know, don't tell anyone, but. Well, never mind. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it alone. I was going to give someone accolades, but I'll just call them instead. All right. There you go. Um, Grom, what would you tell your rookie patrol self? Um, 
some 20 years later, if you could give yourself some advice? I would give myself the advice that Don Sheriff gave at ISSW in Breckenridge to the entire industry, and that was slow down. Slow down and look around. Um, if you get in a hurry, you're going to get killed. But, you know, there's no way around it. Slow down, you know, stop, think, observe, plan. Just, you know, skiing's important, but it's not worth dying for. Right. It's a, that's a, it's a tough lesson to learn in, in times when life is moving so fast. It really is, you know, it's hard. The, the world is so fast paced and, but when you go out there and you're standing on a ridge line and it's blown like stink, uh, take as much time to breathe and look around as you would if you were standing on that same ridge line and it was sunny and gorgeous and you were appreciating the sunrise. Just don't get in a hurry in this business. If you right. get in a hurry, you're going to get hurt. Right. You mentioned earlier about um, when you're patrollers may be going into the backcountry for a rescue. I was wondering if you could just talk briefly about the relationship with your ski patrol and Wasatch backcountry rescue and, and how those sorts of things play out in, in the busy Wasatch backcountry. Right. So Wasatch backcountry rescue for people that aren't aware of it is a professional organization of backcountry rescuers made up of professional ski patrollers and avalanche workers from all the different resorts in Utah. And being spaced out that way at our individual resorts, it allows us to respond either on foot or with the assistance frequently of, of aircraft to anywhere in the Wasatch very, very, very quickly. Um, we can actually respond to Southern Utah relatively quickly as well, and, and we have. Um, and any patroller can be called on to participate in that rescue if they are willing. It's totally up to them. And uh, it's up to me to decide, you know, in the end who's going, what assets they're taking with them, and uh, whether or not it's actually appropriate for them to to go out there and factors include you know i can't send all of my avalanche dogs to a backcountry rescue i need to keep some of them to you know work the ski area because if there's avalanches happening in the backcountry there may very well be happening in the ski area as well um so we factor in, you know, covering the ski area. We factor in the safety of the crew going out there. We factor in the time that it's going to take to get there, you know, and all the, all those things go into a decision that um, allows us to launch a rescue. And uh, our primary goal is kind of a fast strike um, response where we get in get the person and get out in a really big hurry. Um, 
when it drags into multi-day rescues, we'll obviously work dogs on it and, and have personnel there. But that's not really our specialty. Our specialty is, is rapid response. Um, any of our patrollers can go at any time, and they do frequently. Um, and, you know, I've, I've done plenty of it myself. It can be incredibly rewarding. It can be incredibly deflating, depending on the outcomes. Um, you know, it, backcountry rescue is hard business, and uh, it's a lot of hard work for what can frequently be a, a really unpleasant outcome. Hmm. So, yeah. Dave, as you've said, forecasting for avalanches is not an exact science. I think that's pretty well known. Um, care to recount a, a time when you've been caught off guard by the, the snowpack or the terrain? <laughs> Which one? <laughs> <laughs> I think a great example, because it was a real eat crow moment, was running a route um, here in Alta. And I had with me a guest, uh, Mark Staples, who many people know as the director of the Utah Avalanche Center. And uh, we ran this route. You go across the top of a bunch of hanging snow fields up above a big cliff, and everything's going well, and we're just getting new snow avalanches. It's really kind of a no-big-deal morning. And we got to this one – we get down off the rappel to this big piece of snow that's about 1,700 vertical feet, not particularly wide at the top, probably only 150 feet wide at the top, but, you know, it's a, it's a big piece of snow. And uh, based on what we had been seeing and what was going on and my knowledge of the history of that snowpack for the year or of that slide path for the year, I really didn't think much was going to be going on. But we figured, okay, we're going to test it for – for the deep slab anyway because we kind of always do in this spot you know it just never quite goes away what month is and this? uh oh boy i don't know would have been early february mm -hmm. no it's late in the season mm -hmm. and uh so we got a deep strong snowpack and i was with a newer patroller and not expecting much to happen so i said hey why don't you go out there and just Put one on a stick, uh, you know, over near those rocks somewhere. See what you get. And the thing went off, and I sat there as the entire slope went out to the ground. From a small bomb in a place that we had hit, a, you know, dozen times before, and the whole thing went out to the ground. And I had to look at Mark Staples, you know, one of my mentors and director of the UAC, and say, in all honesty, I didn't think that was going to happen. You know, that is not something I foresaw. And uh, you're, you're always surprised by things like that, you know. And most of the time you live through it. Sometimes you don't, but... <laughs> 
you know, and I've also seen things that back at your scheme where I was surprised as well and just going, well, that was stupid in hindsight, you know, but in the moment I was awfully surprised and, and that's just the nature of the beast. I mean, we're dealing with, we're dealing with a material that we don't completely understand. And why certain things happen sometimes, I don't know. And why they don't a lot of the time, I really don't know. I mean, there's countless times when you're just like, I know I'm going to get a huge avalanche here. Hmm. And nothing happens. And, and then you're kind of stumped and you have to look at it and look at it really closely and go, okay, what what ingredient is missing? But, uh, you know, sometimes you get... Sometimes you get surprised, and I actually love those moments. You learn a lot from them. So, what what sort of margin do you advocate building in for an avalanche worker when that high level of uncertainty exists? Well, you—that's when you start looking at you know experience with the terrain and with the snowpack. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of times when you know, you might be safer standing closer to your bomb, but uh, it's a better place for the avalanche. Mm-hmm. And then there's times later in the year where everything gets big and broad and connected, and, you know, you're looking at big, wide avalanches. And I'll be telling my staff, hey, get away. Go a long ways away. And if you have to come back for a second pass or a third pass, fine but get away from these things you know think about where you are or with a hard wind slab don't get too far down on it you know don't let it suck you in because those things will let you get sucked in way down slope and then you know then they pop way above you and uh so you're always thinking of that margin but but again all i can do is give kind of my thoughts in the morning because I'm not out there with them. Um, I'm out there doing my own route and seeing what's going on, but I'm not there exactly where they are. I can't see what's going on. And I just have to have faith in the fact that they're paying attention and, and know what's cooking, you know? Sure. One thing we've discussed is the, the large amount of information out there these days, um, a huge professional network exists within the Wasatch. Are, are, are you all using the InfoX system or what's the system that you all use to share information amongst ski resorts and highway forecasters um, in the Wasatch? So we have an InfoX system here in the Wasatch that is actually not the official InfoX we just call it InfoX, but it's an information exchange between all operations, heli skiing, cat skiing, and all the ski resorts and the UAC that we communicate on early in the morning and again in the afternoon. So we can say, okay, this is what's going on, you know. But at the same time, we're really old fashioned and everybody around here has everybody else's phone number 
And if something goes on at Alta that I think Snowbird needs to know about right now, I'm not going to use the InfoX. I'm going to call them right now. Mm-hmm. You know, and same thing with the DOT or, you know, I get phone calls from Sue Anderson over at Deer Valley, you know, um, the guys at Solitude call all the time. And, and we're pretty good about just calling each other and sharing information and just a lot can get lost if you type it down. Mm-hmm. A lot of detail. Whereas if you hear the war stories straight from somebody's mouth, you actually kind of get the point. So we kind of have, we have the official info acts where we share weather data and avalanche data and things like that. But uh, more, I think those phone calls are more important than anything. You know? Sure. So. Dave, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you think I should? <laughs> no, I think you pretty much covered it, you yeah. know? I think if I would, if I were to close, I would I would tell people, you know, what I told my rookie self, which is slow down and be observant. And with those two skills alone, you'll stay alive for a long time. Well, it's certainly been been great to sit down and chat with you, Grom, and and hear about one of the greatest jobs in the greatest snow on earth. well thank you I appreciate the conversation alright cheers man take care Thanks, everybody, for listening to that one. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you've got questions, if you've got comments, if you've got feedback, email us at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. While you're at it, take a screenshot of your subscription to the podcast, send that on over as well, and you'll be entered to win a snow saw on January 5th. And give us a follow on the socials. We're at the Avalanche Hour Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Our artwork was created by Mike T. You the man T. Make sure to check out more of his work at MikeT.com. M-I-K-E-T-E-A. The theme music in the intro to this episode was Fascination by Chris Kaplinski. And taking us out of the hour is Eyes on Me by Ketza. Use of these tracks were made possible through the permission of the artists. Don't forget to tune in next Thursday, December 24th for Third Thursday with Wes Gregg when he interviews Craig and Bonnie of DeZeco Lodge in British Columbia. Not to be missed. All right, until then, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Don't forget to ski kind. Cheers. Cheers.